Every joke is a tiny revolution, said George Orwell, and each week comedian Tiff Stevenson interviews fellow comics such as Nish Kumar and Sarah Pascoe about the power of comedy to disrupt. Imagine a custard pie splatting into a human face forever. Find Tiny Revolutions wherever you find podcasts and at lushplayer.com. Lee Ronaldo was a mystery glue in Sonic Youth. The George Harrison of the groundbreaking New York band, whose creativity has found a spotlight and focus with the breakup of the Alpha Group and the chance to tell his own fascinating story. process how does it start you know what's the moment in pop culture when you realize there's just that little bit more to it well i mean i don't know that's a pretty broad question um but when sonic youth started back in the early 80s we we we, we lived in new york we, we in a way we lived in a time long before the internet new york was a little island you know kind of similar we always felt it was similar to where the way berlin was at that time this kind of like walled off city in the east and things that happened in New York kind of stayed in New York, and everybody was trying different things. Nobody, nobody thought that anything they did was weird, or nobody was doing anything weird for the sake of being weird. Everybody was just trying to, to add to the conversation, do something new that wasn't the same old thing, you know? And it was, for us, it was only after we started getting out into America and coming to, to, to Europe that we realized that we were doing something that like people were like, wow, you guys are really weird, you know? Like, in New York, everybody was really weird in one way or another, so that was kind of the normal in a way. So, I mean, I don't know. It's it's a very broad question. Like, how does how does how do ideas begin? Is is what you're asking basically? I guess the island you were in is even more of an island, as we talked about before. You were rehearsing in Michael Jaira and Swans space. Yeah, so that we shared a space with Swans in the early days, in like '81 and '82. Michael lived in this bunker in the East Village, like in one of the most dangerous parts of Manhattan, and it was always super scary to walk the last couple blocks to this place, and he lived in this windowless bunker. I was telling you, I, 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 I regret not taking pictures of this place, because it was, he had scrawl, he was just a squalid, you know, people in New York are willing to tolerate really squalid living conditions in order to be in Manhattan and to be around that energy. And, he had drawn like skulls and snakes all over the walls and like black, heavy black marker and they were quite beautiful in a way, but it was just a dump. And we rehearsed there and, and Swans rehearsed there and I think for a while Lydia was rehearsing there and you know it was uh, we were trying you know we were trying to, to stay uh, stay in the in the game. Real fulcrum of intensity. Yeah. Did it feel like that when you were there, or was it just kind of fun? Or did you say, no? Well, I don't know if it was fun, exactly. It wasn't fun to go to that neighborhood, because you really felt like you scared. You were scared for your life when you went over in the neighborhood. Like, no kidding, it was really, really, especially if we rehearse in the afternoon and come out after dark, like you'd come out this door and you'd be like, you had to walk two or three blocks really fast to get to, get to sort of safe, safety. And, uh, but it was, you know, it, it, made, it meant that what we were doing we were really serious. You have to be pretty serious about it to put up with that stuff, you know, to be there and then be in those conditions. You had to, you know, I mean, I think that was, that's the interesting thing about New York is in, in those days especially, it was not a cushy place at all. It was really difficult. And so everybody that was there was there because they were really determined to be there. You know, you had to fight to be there. And that kind of, you know, made us stronger, I guess, in a certain way. 
And so I followed them from you know '63 or '64, whenever they were on Insolvent, in real time. And that was that was a time that shaped history in, in a lot of ways. You know, I'm still going back to that time a lot. But yeah, it's true. And that, that's really they talk. You know, from I mean, the first records, great records, great rock and roll records. Yeah. Very quick journey they took into like brilliant art rock. Yeah. That is that is that primary for some of you? Does that show you the possibilities of pop culture? Well, I mean, I suppose so. I mean, they, they, they were seven years. They did all that stuff in seven years. It's kind of unbelievable when you think about it. And, um, you know, it, it set a blueprint. Like, bands had to step up. You know, you wanted to be culture-changing. That's what your your goal was, in a way, to be in part of the conversation of the culture, anyway. And, you know, uh, they were art school kids, to some degree. Certainly, John Lennon was, and, uh, you know, a lot of those British musicians were, and, and, you know, Kim and I came out of art school, moved to New York to do art and music, and Thurston was kind of interested in literature, and, you know, everybody in New York wanted to do something else, you know, but everybody came through, you know, we weren't garage rockers, you know, like high school garage rockers, everybody had come out of university, and, you know, everybody was in bands, people that later, you know, Jim Jarmusch was in a band, Robert Longo and Richard Prince were in bands, uh, you know, uh, Basquiat and Vinnie Gallo and all these people, they started in bands because it was easier to get a gig than to get an art show, certainly, or to get funding for a film. And, you know, it meant the conversation was very deep on all, you know, Arno Lindsay was a, was a drama person. Glenn Branca came out of the drama, drama school, you know, he, was, he ended up making music because uh, he was writing these experimental plays and he needed music and he couldn't find anything radical enough until he started inventing his own music and got more interested in the music, the music became his, his special form of drama. Um, and you know, I wanted to start with that film of, of Glenn tonight, because he was on my mind a lot recently. He passed away not, not so many months ago, and uh, when I moved to New York, when all of us in Sonic Youth moved to New York, he was one of the most radical things that was happening at, at that time. And you know, it, like you would be astounded by the things that were happening around you every single day. It was such a creative time. I mean, that journey to get there from the possibilities of what rock and roll was in the late 60s, you know, you go through the Grateful Dead and balance out that as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something like Ben Branca because he was there right in front of you. You know, that you walk into, I think you see him play live first, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you see him play and you think, there's some doorstep. Yeah. Actually part of this. Yeah. That kind of well, it was. I mean, that was happening all over New York, you know. And and in that those days, nobody knew who was going to go on to be famous, you know. So you had Glenn, and you had Reese Chatham, and you had Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, and you had Talking Heads and the Voidoids and Television, and you had Steve Reich and Meredith Monk and Philip Glass, and everybody was kind of uh, kind of equals for a while, you know. Nobody knew what was going to happen or what was going to take off or catch hold, and everybody was sort of feeding off each other, in a way. And, you know, it was a remarkable time to be there. I mean, when, when you sort of approached Glenn Branca and then you played with Glenn Branca, I mean, you obviously, what was that like? You know, was it, was it a bit nerve-wracking, or was it...? Well, you know, when I first moved to New York, we were living in this, you know, people would live in these uh, unconstructed 
loft floors, like factory floor that you have to like put in the sinks and put in the water heaters and all that stuff. And, uh, we moved into this place in Brooklyn, me and a couple guys I was playing music with at the time, and there was this guy living across the hall named Anthony Coleman, and he was playing with Glenn. He was a keyboard player, he still is. And he said, you know, I'm playing with this guy named Glenn Rugg, you should come and see him play. And, and you know, we did, and it like totally knocked us out. And it was, you know, you wanted to, Glenn would put ads in the Village Voice, like downtown composer looking for experimental guitar players, you know, because he needed more and more guitar players. And uh, he had seen me play with Reese Chatham, and I answered one of these ads and went over to his house, and he wanted to sh sort of show you some techniques and see if you could, could do the things he wanted from you, you know? And, uh, and we became kind of, you know, so long-time so he, friends. He's kind of bouncing you more than... In a way, I mean, you know, he was inspiring us. You know, we came to New York with a lot of inspirations already. The Stooges, the Velvets, you know, all these different things, a lot of 60s bands. And uh, all of a sudden we found all these new inspirations happening in New York. But Glenn, Glenn took an immediate liking to Sonic Youth. He started, he started a record label and he was like, I want you guys to be the first record. You know, which was the first of many lucky breaks we had in terms of being able to continue with this weird music that we were doing. We were, you know, we were able to make a record within six months of being a band together when, at a time when there were no independent labels or certainly no uh, magazines covering that kind of music. And, you know, so we got this start. We had a lot of monkey breaks like that in the early days that allowed us to, uh, to prosper. You know, Thurston and I were playing with Glenn and we came on a tour to Europe. We played in Amsterdam at the Paradiso on that tour in 1983. And um, we toured all around Europe, and everywhere we went, uh, Thurston and I were saying to the promoters, like, well, we've got this little band in New York, can we come next month, you know, and play? And, like, we set up this, like, sort of tour that followed the rooting of Glenn's tour, and we were able, because the two of us were already here, and he bought our plane tickets, we only needed two other tickets to get Kim and Bob over, and, and uh, we were able to come to Europe, like, two or three years before Swans or any of our peers, and... You know, it just was another lucky break in this kind of long cycle for us. So, so when you initially started Sonic Youth, it was an attempt to take, not take, not steal, but you know, those, the things you were with Glenn Brown, and those ideas, but somehow put them into sort of almost... Well, lots of things. Yeah. What the Ramones were doing, and what television was doing, and what, you know, the contortions were doing, and DNA. We were, we were inspired by all these different things. And we, you know, everybody, like I said, everybody in New York was trying to get in the conversation. You know, we were kind of like third generation behind those bands that got famous Talking Heads and Blondie and, you know, and then there were these no-wave bands and we were kind of like the baby baby cousins of them. We rehearsed in uh, a space that Lydia Lunch was rehearsing Teenage Jesus in. It's another dank, carpet-covered, like, hellhole in, uh, in the Lower East Side. But, uh, you know, um, uh, we just kept plugging away at it. So when you, I mean, work for the first years, decades now, I mean, on and off, yeah. projects, obviously, when, when you play together, do you learn off each other, or do you work around each other, or is, is it even sometimes, in this space, quite hard, to slightly more competition, get the, the crews and sounds? Well, we were never very competitive with each other. It was more like a mutual appreciation. You know, we, we knew what we liked, and there were some things we, we liked, we all liked the same things, and there were lots of things where, like, you know, I liked one thing that nobody else in the band liked, maybe the Grateful Dead, or, or Steve, or Thurston liked something, you know, and, or Kim, and, and uh, we, would, we were kind of uh, turning each other on to, the, to these different things, and like, you know, kind of coalescing. It was very much of a little community of the four of us kind of 
supporting each other in a way. Well, I'm going to talk about a minute ago about all those characters in New York. Yeah. It's an extended community, isn't it? It's not just four people in the band. It's all the, you know, people like Bassoir, people, you know, people making films. In a sense, it's not use part of 30, 40, 50 people. Sure, yeah. sure. You know, in the very earliest period, when we, right before we started, actually, um, Thurston organized this nine-night festival in, in an art gallery in Soho called, called the Noise Fest. And it was, he invited all the bands that were happening, so Glenn played, you know, DNA played, all these different bands, young, old. So all these people that were playing around on the scene hung out for like nine summer nights in this one location, and everybody met each other, and saw what each other were doing, and like, kind of, it kind of supported the scene in a way. And um, during that time, like, Thurston and Kim were doing the very first fledgling version of what was to become Sonic Youth, and it was kind of falling apart, and I was playing with this other guy, and it was falling apart, and during that nine nights, Kim said to me, like, oh, you should try playing with Thurston, I think you guys would play really well together, and as soon as those nine nights were over, we started rehearsing in that gallery space, just the three of us, you know, banging on guitars with drumsticks, trying every idea that we had, and we went out and played for five or six months, just the three of us, it was as a noise trio, basically. And that was kind of the beginning of the whole thing, and it was, you know, the beginning of this community noticing each other. All these, all these musicians kind of realized who each other were. How does the dynamic of the band work? I guess it's not working like a normal band, is you get the one songwriter over those parts. No. Everybody's not equal. We never really, ha we never really had a songwriter in that sense of like, you know, it was very rare that someone would come in and say, like, oh, I've got this new song, it's called Teenage Riot, it goes like this, you know. Uh, that almost never, ever happened for us. We, we would get together and play, and we, we had a really rigorous work ethic. We'd play, like, you know, uh, 1 o'clock to 7 o'clock, five days a week, just get together in this rehearsal space, bash things around. Maybe somebody would come in with two chords or, or a noise sound that they liked, and we would just kind of play and tape stuff, and say like, oh, that sounds good, you know, listening back, and like, uh, let's try to do that again, you know, and, and built these songs up like that. So they were very much uh, built from the four of us, all the ideas, you know, meaning like, you know, the, everyone in the band contributed ideas to these songs. And I was saying this to someone the other night, we, we wrote almost all of our songs instrumentally. We almost never had lyrics in the picture until the very last stages, which was kind of unusual. Usually that's one of the first things that happens, is you got a, you know, an idea for a song and the lyrics kind of shape it. But we were listening to all these composers downtown, and we were trying to create pieces of music. And oftentimes we'd get to the stage of, like, we'd go to the recording studio and, and record the music that was going to be the next record before anybody sang a note, you know? And then we'd, we'd have these songs recorded and we'd, we'd take a break for a month or two and be like, okay, you, you try to sing on those three and I'll sing this one or whatever. It was an unusual way to work, but it meant that our music kind of held together as, as you know, it wasn't just kind of rote, you know, verse, chorus, verse kind of thing. So even when the vocals were put on, they weren't... You still thought of not being a key part. Just, just, yeah, sometimes it would be like, shit, I've got four lines, but there's only three lines, there's only room for three, like, what do we do? You know, we had to, like, adapt the vocals around the, the music that we were making, and it was, it was an interesting process, and it was, uh, I mean, I think it ultimately made us that much stronger. What was I think it? The tunings were another... I mean, did, the people take, did different people take a lead on different songs, or was it... Yeah, sure, I mean, uh, at some point or other, 
there was it was kind of clear who was going to end up singing each song. But we worked on them as music. You know, we just we get together and make music. And sometimes we would just play and not worry about it. And sometimes we'd be starting to shape something and say like, let's play that thing we played yesterday and see if we can bring it a little further. And, you know, it, it kind of worked like that in a way. It was it was very much a little. You know, music has this wonderful aspect that it's very social, or at least it was for us. You know, it's you know when you're a singer songwriter or something like that, you're kind of you're like a painter in your lonely room, like working all by yourself. But this was kind of like, you know, you're a gang. When you're in a band, you're kind of a gang in a way. You, know, you must have that feeling, you know, with the membranes. And it's, it's kind of like we would, we would get together, we would tell each other what movies we were seeing and what was turning us on, what we were reading, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it all kind of filtered together into what we were trying to do. Is that dynamic? Change at all over the years, or did it stay almost all the way up to right to the very end? You know, a lot of that dynamic stayed the same almost all the way to the end. We got better at what we were doing and more proficient with the tunings, and I guess we became better players. It's kind of hard to say because we played in a style that was just the way we played. You know, we're not, we weren't uh, able to play Clapton riffs or anything like that, you know, but um, we kind of kept that, that energy all the way to the end. I mean, occasionally somebody would be like, okay, here's a song, here's an idea for a song. But mostly we kept that kind of communal spirit all the way to the end. And certainly once, um, once Steve joined, we really had this locked-in foursome that was very like-minded and moving forward in a very specific way. You know, before that we had a few different drummers, Jim Scalunos, Bob Burden. They were all contributed really important things, but they were all kind of transitory. But once uh, Steve came along in like 85 or whatever it was, um, we kind of locked in together and we were really able to move forward and like realize these ideas that we had. So when it ended the band, I mean, at first, I mean, do you, do you have a lot of stuff you put out straight away? I mean, it's, it's, it's something you're something like George Harrison and stuff, some of the stuff that we've done since then. Yeah. But at the initial point where the band stopped, was it like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? Or was it like, wow, I've got all this stuff. Now I've got this freedom, I can just do anything. Well, you know, thankfully for me, in the last year and a half of the band, you know, I've always kind of written songs on the side and thought I'd make a solo record at some point, but there was never, you know, that's a lot of large uh, commitment to do that. And, and Sonic Youth was always too much of a commitment for me to, to try and do something like that because it took so much time. But in the last, when we were making The Eternal and touring The Eternal, we had a lot of downtime between periods when we'd go out on the road. And I started recording these songs, and when, when it came to light that Thurston and Kim were splitting and we were going to stop playing, I pretty much had an album recorded. So there was kind of this weird, smooth transition. It was like, all right, I'll go out and play shows with these other guys. And Steve was still playing with me, and um, it was almost an easy transition in a very strange way. I played my first show in kind of my band the night of the day that it was announced in the press that they were divorcing. And it was like such a weird thing to be standing on stage with these other guys this night. And like, you know, just that day, everyone in, you know, in our community found out that like, that this weird thing was happening for Sonic Youth, kind of like all these dash folks or whatever you want to call it. And, um, but you know, kind of like one thing led to another in a way. And you know, we were together for 30 years and we did a lot of stuff and got to work with a lot of different amazing people from Neil Young to Brigitte Fontaine and, you know, Iggy and you know, all these different people, Bunhoney and Nirvana, and, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I think 
I think we're all pretty happy where we are right now doing what we're doing. And, and in a way, the fact that the band stopped gave us, you know, for the last five or ten years of the band, there was kind of this friction between stuff we were trying to do on our own and, and commitments to the band. And all of a sudden, when, that, when the band stopped, it was like, okay, now we're free to do these things and explore them in a more full way. And it was maybe the right time for that to happen. So, so in a sense, it's getting to the end of his natural period. In a way, life. you know, we were, I feel like we were pretty strong right up until the end. The last record we made was this uh, record we made for our label called SYR. We had this label called SYR, Sonic Youth Recorders. And we made this uh, soundtrack for a French film called Simon Werner Disparu. That's the name of the record of this film. And it's some of my favorite music that we made. It was the very last thing we recorded. And you know, and, and when we were touring the Eternal, I remember being on stage. This was after you know we had this period where we expanded to five people with Jim O'Rourke, and then he kind of left, and we made a couple more records. And I just remember being out on the road, thinking like, man, we're playing shows like after 25 or 30 years that are as intense and as as strong as anything we ever did. You know, and I think we have, we never felt like the intensity level or the quality level ever slacked off, you know. I think we would have stopped before if we felt that, you know. So, I mean, it's good to end on a peak. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was, it was a good, you know, it was a good moment to end. Mm-hmm. Was it difficult the way it ended? I mean, because you said, well, it ended so in a strange long. way, you know. Yeah. You never know how, you know, you never imagine if you're a band. We're not going to have time for any questions. Uh, we will, we will. You, you never know. Imagine when you're a band, you're going to be a band for 25 or 30 years. I'm like, who the, who the fuck does that? Like the Rolling Stones or, or, or whatever. But you know, you think you're going to be a band for two or three years. And we just kept going and kept kind of pushing each other and, and being really interested in what the four of us could do in a way. Thank you guys so much for sticking around. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the John Robb Tapes with me, John Robb. Brought to you by Lush and Louder Than War, this podcast was produced and engineered by Andrew Payne. If you enjoy this, please retweet it and tell your mates. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you'll probably like other podcasts made by Lush. Maybe, potentially, hopefully. Definitely. You should tune in to the Lush podcast with me, Nilla Davies. And me, Olivia Graham. Available on iTunes. Like, link, subscribe. (laughs) 